Well, as we've said a couple times already this morning, today is Reformation Sunday, and all that really means in, as far as the date is it's the date on the calendar, on the church calendar, on which we acknowledge and remember the work of God in reviving much of the Western world through the rediscovery, so to speak, of the gospel of Christ, and especially that great gospel doctrine of justification by faith alone. You might know, you've probably heard this if you've been here any length of time, you've probably heard this remarked a number of times, but... It was on October 31st, which we think of as the candy day, the Halloween. Uh, Hallow's Eve is what it's really called. Uh, back in 1517, just over 500 years ago today, that, or tomorrow rather, Martin Luther, that monk, uh, tacked his famous 95 theses. Uh, those were just points of discussion and debate on the social media of his day. 500 years ago, you might not know they had social media uh, it was not a Facebook wall, but the actual doors of a castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, that Luther took a little hammer and supposedly tacked his uh, paper, his document, onto the door of that church. And as, as they say these days, it went viral. That posted, and the rest is literally history. Um, and so what we often do in Reformed and Presbyterian and Lutheran churches, we often highlight the doctrine of justification, among other things, on this Sunday, and hopefully not just once a year, and hopefully we spend a lot of time talking about this doctrine on a regular basis. Um, and the reason we do that was that this is one of the doctrines that was one of the main things that was uh, brought to the forefront through the work of the Protestant reformers. Um, it's one of those doctrines, I know I say this, you probably think I say this about every doctrine, but it's more so in this case. It's one of those doctrines, the importance of which cannot really be overstated. There are some broad sweeping statements that have been made about justification in the history of the church. Uh, you might know that it's often said that it's the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. I believe it was Calvin said that said it was the hinge on which the Christian religion turns. So you, you monkey with that, you, you get rid of that, you deny it, and a lot of damage, even if unintended, is what results from it. Um, why is it so important? Why is the doctrine, the truth, and the reality of justification by faith alone, why is it so important? Why is it so hard to overstate its importance? And that's because the issue at hand here is not just some doctrinal nitpicky thing. The issue at hand in this great gospel doctrine is one of life and death. It's one of eternal life or condemnation because it's about how a sinner, and that's all of us, that's every human being who's ever lived except the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about how a sinner can be made right with God. You know, of all the things that we pray for, uh, all the serious diseases, we talk about cancer, and we all know people who have died uh, of cancer and other things. As serious and life and death as those things are, this is far more. This is far more important as how a sinner can be made right with God. Um, as we said, this is the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. And so if a church loses sight of this truth or, if the, or you know, this truth of the gospel, if we allow this, this doctrine to be compromised, what happens is it begets an inevitable decline, even all the way sometimes into apostasy if it's not repented of in the mercy and kindness of God. And likewise, on the other end of the coin, on the other side of the coin, revival in the church is often begun by a sound repentance and often involves a recommitment to this doctrine, a commitment to proclaiming this great gospel truth of justification by faith alone. Some of you know who Martin Lloyd-Jones 
uh, is and was his book Revival, which I recommend and commend to you. Uh, His book Revival, he writes the following. He says, I think I can summarize the history of the Christian church in this respect in this way. The concealing and the neglect of certain truths and certain aspects of Christian truth has always been the chief characteristic of every period of declension, that is decline, in the long history of the church. If you read the history of the church and look at these periods of declension, when the church was more abundant and did not seem to count at all, you will find that without a single exception, the thing that has most characterized the life of the church at such a time has been either a denial uh, or a concealing or else a neglect of certain vital truths which are essential to the whole Christian position. Did you catch that? In his view, and I think he's right, it's the denial, the downplaying, the neglect of certain uh, core truths of Scripture, the gospel certainly being one of them, that leads to, you could say it's a chicken or an egg, which one started the decline, but either way it's a sign of a decline. Uh, And I believe that is the case. And I think, you know, when you see some of the things that churches do, that many churches, well-meaning, well-intended at times, I think, but what they do very often to try to attract people in is do just what he mentioned. Start neglecting certain truths that people don't like to hear. Start neglecting those truths. Start toning it down or shaving off what we sometimes perceive wrongly as the so-called sharper edges of Scripture, the things that make people uncomfortable. What happens? Decline. You might, you might have a full house, but you're going to have a full house where there's no candlestick, so to speak, to use the words of Revelation. Well, later in that same book, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones goes on to highlight, among other, among other things, the doctrine of justification as one of those vital truths, and he says briefly this, Obviously, the doctrine of justification by faith alone is absolutely essential. And here he says, There has never been a revival, but that this has always come back into great prominence. Never. And I think he's right. You know, that the whole, I, I used that word intentionally when I mentioned the Reformation was about reviving the church. Well, what did God use at that time to revive the church and much of the Western world through it was the doctrine of justification by faith alone, among other things, the doctrine of Scripture as well. Uh, so if, if Lloyd Jones is right, and I believe he is, uh, the doctrine of justification by faith alone is vitally important to the life, health, and the usefulness of this or any other church. And so that being the case, it's well worth our time, I think, to focus our attention uh, on what the Word of God has to teach us on this matter, not just once a year at Reformation Sunday, but as often as we can, as often as it can come up in the passages that we happen to be looking at. So if you're not familiar with the book of Galatians, I know many of you are, in Galatians you could say Paul is giving his defense. He's stating the doctrine of justification, among other things, but that's the main the main note, and he's defending and applying that doctrine. And much of the the middle two chapters of of that book, he's defending the doctrine of justification by faith alone against those who are teaching contrary to it. Here he's defending it against the attacks of a group of false teachers. Uh, We we call them Judaizers. And what the Judaizers were doing was, essentially they were teaching that Gentiles, you know, pagans, non-Jews, in order for them to come to Christ and be saved, they basically had to become Jews first. 
So they had to, among other things, be circumcised and follow the ceremonial aspects uh, and other things of the law of Moses. So they said they kind of put a, a stumbling block in the way of those who would come to faith in Christ. They said they had to become Jews in order to be true Christians. In other words, they taught that, that Gentiles, pagans, had to essentially become children of Abraham, so-called, before they could be children of God. And so what, what does Paul do to refute this? He goes right to the source. It's as if he says, oh, you want to talk about Abraham? Well, let's talk about Abraham. And Paul, you know, it's one of these things that we'll see, Lord willing, as we go on in our text. You might have thought of this when Robin was reading Isaiah 53. All these gospel doctrines we talk about and we think of as the New Testament age, where are they found? Where did the apostles preach them from? From the Old Testament. You know, if I were to say, if I were to give you a pop quiz, right? Pop quiz, hot shot, right? If I gave you a quiz and said, Name me a chapter or a verse in the Bible that deals with justification. I bet most of us would say Romans 4, Galatians 3, other places. But what Paul would say was, what about Genesis? Paul says Genesis 15:6 is about just the first book in the Bible deals with justification. It's it's established early on in the book of Genesis in the very first book of the Bible. Well, Paul, Paul references or refers to Abraham at least nine times in this short letter of Galatians. You might know he also mentions him later on in the book of Romans as well. So the Judaizers or legalists made a lot out of Abraham, and so that's where Paul focuses his argument and focuses our time. So we're going to, Lord willing, see three things from our text this morning, maybe other things as well. We're going to look at first the faith of Abraham, the faith of Abraham. Secondly, the true sons of of Abraham, and thirdly, and last but not least, the gospel according to Abraham. So first thing, the faith of Abraham, the first thing that Paul does is go back to the father of the Jews, so to speak. And what does he do that for? He's doing this to demonstrate once and for all what it really means to be a son of Abraham. These people wanted to have everybody be sons of Abraham. Paul's going to define what that really means for them. Look at verse 6. Once again, Paul says, just as Abraham believed God, he's quoting Genesis 15:6. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him or reckoned to him as righteousness. So Paul points us back to Genesis 15:6, where it says, "And he, that is Abram, believed the Lord, and he, that is the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness." So Paul also, you might know, quotes this verse. In Romans chapter 4, verse 3, where just like here in our text, he's establishing and proving the doctrine of justification by faith alone and using the Old Testament to do it. In fact, in Romans, maybe even more so than he does here, Paul uses Abraham as the exemplar of faith. He is the test subject of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. It's how Paul establishes his doctrine here James chapter 2, verse 23, you might know, also quotes Genesis 15, 6, dealing with the topic of justification. And so you could say this one little verse tucked away in Genesis chapter 15. If you've never read the New Testament, if you could, you know, I always say this, kind of etch a sketch your brain a little bit. I feel like I do that more than I should. But if you had never read Romans and you were to go back and read Genesis and get to chapter 15, I'm guessing most of us probably wouldn't stop, hit the brakes and go, wow. There's the doctrine of justification established, but that's what Paul is saying is happening there. 
Paul uses that, that text to establish his doctrine. And so this is clearly, Genesis 15:6 is a key verse in all of Scripture for a pretty important doctrine of God's word. Now, why, why was Abraham's faith counted or reckoned to him as righteousness? Why was, it, why was it accounted to him as it was right as if he were righteous before God? Is there something magical or, or meritorious in God's eyes about the quality of faith? John Stott writes the following. He says, to say justification by faith is merely another way of saying justification by Christ. Faith has absolutely no value in itself. Its value lies solely in its object. Faith is the eye that looks to Christ, the hand that lays hold of him, and the mouth that drinks the water of life. We, we sometimes say in theological terms, faith is the alone or the only instrument of justification. It is not the basis of that justification. It's like drinking through a straw. The straw is just the, 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 the medium, so to speak, that gets the liquid uh, to your mouth. Well, faith is the hand that lays hold on Christ. So the righteousness that's accounted or reckoned to us by faith in Christ is nothing other than the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and his death in our place. That is what is reckoned to you if you're a believer this morning. That is why God can view you and I who are sinners as righteous and acceptable in his sight. Not because faith has some meritorious value, but because faith lays hold of Christ and his righteousness put to our account. Derek Kidner, in his commentary on Genesis, points out that Abraham's faith was both, quote, personal, that is, in the Lord, and propositional, the context of the specific word of the Lord in those verses. So that, and that really is, that may sound like a confusing thing, way to put it, but that's what the nature of saving faith is really about, those two things. Saving faith is not... Here's what it's not. It's not just mental agreement or assent to the propositional statements of Scripture. Saving faith is not the Bible says that, yeah, okay. That's part of it. It has to be a part of it, but it's not just that. James 2.19 says this. James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. You know, good job. You, You got the most basic theological thing down. You believe that God is one, you do well. And then he says, Even the demons believe and shudder or tremble. Here's a question. Who would pass a theology exam with better marks? You or a demon? It's an easy answer. It might be a humbling answer, but a demon. I've got, you know, little pieces of paper on my wall at the office. If you've stopped by, you may have seen them that, that they testify. I've spent some time studying. They don't mean anything. When it, when it comes to that, I don't know theology as well as demons do. Neither do you. Neither does anybody else you've ever met. And yet, are they saved because of that knowledge? And it's a right knowledge, right? They, they understand things correctly. And no, certainly not. They are certainly not saved. But at least they shudder. At least they have the good sense to tremble. The only application of those truths they might ever have, but... Um, are, they, are demons justified before God because they have a right understanding of theological truth? No. Saving faith in Jesus Christ is, is not a matter of merely passing a Christian theology exam. It's a matter of trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the one whose word and truth we are assenting to. 
But while saving faith is most certainly more than assent to the propositional truths of the Bible and the gospel of Christ, it's also not less than that either. You, you say you believe in Christ. Well, are you believing in Christ of your own imagination or the one presented to you in Scripture? There are many who do the former and not the latter. They, they want to believe in a Christ, but the Christ of their own devising, of their own imaginations. The things they don't like about Christ, they think they can pick and choose and leave behind. There is no trusting, no true trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ without also trusting in the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe God and take him at his promise precisely by believing what he has said, especially what he promises to us in the gospel of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. The Shorter Catechism uh, has a good uh, way of putting those two things together for us in its definition of saving faith. Question and answer 86 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, what is faith in Jesus Christ? Ever wonder what that means? You know, we, we sometimes as believers, we kind of throw around words like grace and faith and, and without really taking the time to define what they mean and what those words mean. Well, here's a good definition that you could, I'd even commend it to you to, to memorize it. What is faith in Jesus Christ? Answer, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. So both the propositional and the personal, so to speak, are included there. Saving faith is a receiving and resting upon Christ alone for salvation. That's the personal. You're, you're trusting in, believing in Christ himself for salvation. And that only in the way that he himself is, as it says, is offered to you in the gospel. The propositional, the actual truth of the gospel. And so I'll ask this morning, is your faith in Christ both personal and propositional? Do you claim to trust in Christ while denying uh, the truth of his word? Do you, do you find yourself picking and choosing things in the Bible that you do and don't believe, accepting the things that are comfortable and rejecting those things that are not, especially regarding the gospel? Or do you understand and know theology very, very well, correctly, while not trusting in God whose word that you say you believe? We're not saved by theological knowledge. It's good to have it. It's, I would say it's required in many ways. You don't need a degree. Uh, but that alone is not enough. It must be both. It must be a, a true faith in Jesus Christ and only as Jesus Christ is offered to us in his gospel. Paul wrote, Elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 13.5, he says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Paul's writing that to a church. We might hear those words and kind of recoil back from them and say, Wow, what a, what a, a difficult thing to say. Paul wrote that to an entire church. It must be good for us to do that. It must be good and not harmful for us to do just that, to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. Well, the second thing that we look at here in our text in verse 7 is the, the true sons or true children of Abraham. In verse 7, Paul says this, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. This is a key part of his Defense of, of the gospel here. Being a true son of Abraham is not and never has been really been about being an ethnic Jew alone. 
It has never been primarily about being circumcised. It is first and foremost and always has been a spiritual category and one that is about faith first and foremost, faith in the promises of God. Now, the word that Paul uses there in verse verse 7, the word know sometimes can be taken in two different ways. It can be taken as if it were an indicative, as if Paul's saying, hey, you already know X, Y, and Z. Or it can be taken as an imperative, as a command, as an instruction for us to do. And I believe uh, what Paul is doing here is giving us a command. He's saying, know this. Something we are to be persuaded of and to know. The ESV and ASB both rightly translated as a command or an imperative. It's something Paul wants us to know. Paul wants you and I to know and rightly understand that the testimony of Genesis 15.6 uh, because if we do, we'll plainly see that, that Abraham is the example of faith that runs contrary to the, the false gospel of legalism. He wants us to understand what Genesis 15:6 is really teaching us about the way of salvation. Now, what Paul is doing here, he's kind of restating the premise of the argument of the Judaizers. He's saying, okay, you want to be like Abraham? Let's be like Abraham. How was Abraham saved? Was he saved when he was, when he, when he was circumcised? No. How was Abraham justified? It says it right in the text. Abraham, what? Believed God. And so it's those who are of faith, he says in verse 7, who are the real sons of Abraham. So know then, he says, that it's those who are of faith, not those who are of the works of the law, who are the sons, the real sons of Abraham. So he's saying, do you want to be a real son of Abraham? Then don't rely on circumcision for your right standing with God. Because it's not what Abraham did. You're doing something other than what Abraham set before you as an example, if that's what you do. If anything, Paul's point is that if they were seeking to be justified by the works of the law, they were the ones, the Judaizers, the ones who were the legalists. They weren't the real sons of Abraham at all, no matter what they did otherwise. No matter what their bloodline was, no matter what their nationality was, no matter what their uh, circumcision and other things they did may have, uh, they may have done, they were not the true children of Abraham if they weren't those who were of faith. The Judaizers and those who followed them, ironically enough, were not the true children of Abraham at all. Why? Because they, they sought not to be justified by faith, faith alone, but by, but by the works of the law. It's essentially... Justification, like it always is, comes down to one of two things. You can try to be justified by works, by what you do in some way, shape, or form, or you can be justified by what Christ has done and through faith in him and what he has done. God, God's promises to Abraham are found back in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, as Paul quotes that here. And it's not until Genesis chapter 17, after Abraham believed God and it was counted to him, as righteousness, it was only then that the Lord instituted, introduced circumcision as a sign and seal of the covenant. Paul's just going through in chronological order. He's saying, he's saying I'll, I'll do it backwards from the way I would think of it. Here's Genesis 15. Here's Paul justified by faith. Genesis 17, however, however long it was after that, after that, he gives him the circumcision as a sign and seal of the old covenant. Paul actually points this out again in Romans chapter 4, Romans 4, verses 9 through 12. Paul spells this out for us in more detail. He says, Romans 4, 9 to 12, he says, Is this blessing 
and that blessing is justification. Is this blessing, justification, then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? In other words, is it for Jews or is it for, is it for Jews and Gentiles both? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? And he says, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Paul's writing to the church in Rome, probably mostly Gentile, and what does he call Abraham to them? Our father Abraham. Three times in that text he says that Abraham was justified before, not after, he was circumcised. And the purpose of that was to make him the father of all who believe. Three times there Paul says it was before he was circumcised that he was justified. Abraham was justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And so we too must do as well if we're to be saved. That is the only way of salvation, not through works, not through what we do, but only what, God, what Christ has done for us. And that brings us maybe most importantly to the gospel according to Abraham in verses 8 and 9. Abraham believed God, right? Verse 6, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Those who believe just like Abraham did are the true sons of Abraham, verse 7. But what did Abraham believe? What did Abraham believe unto salvation? What did God say or promise to Abraham that he believed unto salvation? Look at verses 8 and 9. It says, Paul writes, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith. The very form that God's promise to Abraham took also contradicts the position and teachings, the false teachings of the Judaizers. The promise was, in you shall what? All the nations, all the Gentiles. The nations and Gentiles were almost an inter interchangeable at that time in history notion. Anybody who wasn't a Jew was a Gentile. The nations were, were pagan Gentile nations. And those nations weren't going to be obliterated. They were going to be blessed through the Messiah who was to come. That blessing of the gospel was for all the nations. And what does that teach us? That God's plan for all the nations in Christ didn't just start in Matthew 28 with the Great Commission. Matthew 28, the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples of what? All the nations. Where do you find that first stated? In Genesis 12 and 15. It was God's plan the whole time. The gospel was to be a light and the Messiah was to be a light unto what? Unto all the nations. It's not plan B. It wasn't God changing gears. It was his plan from the, the entire time all the way back in the book of Genesis in the beginning. Galatians 3.8 
I don't know if it's the verse you've had much exposure to. I think Genesis, Galatians rather, Galatians 3.8. It's kind of one of the most amazing verses in the New Testament. I think if you were to, to take some time and pay attention to it and think about what it says, it will transform how you look at your Bible. It can have a transformational effect on how you look at the Bible. We could spend a whole Sunday talking about verse 8 alone, verse eight alone but we'll hold off on that and just look at it briefly. It answers, I think, some pretty vital questions, at least a few. One, what is scripture? Whose word is the Bible? It answers that for us. What is the relationship between the Old and the New Testament? Are they radically separate from each other, as some dispensationalists claim? Third, how were people justified and saved in the Old Testament? I've heard that question asked to me a number of times, and people are often shocked to hear the right answer to that question. Many people are taught wrongly that there was a different way of salvation in the Old Testament. Nothing could be further from the truth. I don't know how you read Romans and, and come to that conclusion. Paul, all he does is point to the Old Testament. Justification. Look at Abraham. Uh, all these things he says in, in, in his letters. First, what is the nature of Scripture? What is the Bible? How does Galatians 3.8 touch on that? Whose word is the Bible, Paul says, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. One, he's telling you that Genesis 15.6 is, is scripture, or that, that passage in Genesis is scripture. But what does, he, what does he equate scripture to? God. What scripture says, who says? God says. That is, the, that is the right view of the Bible. That is, should be this Christian. If you're a Christian, that should be your view of Scripture. Commentator William Hendrickson writes the following. In the words of Scripture foreseeing, preach the gospel beforehand, we have a very emphatic identification of God and his word. What the Scripture promises, God promises, for he is the speaker. It's the word of God that we're reading this morning. Secondly, what is the re what's the right relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Here in this one little verse tucked away in Galatians 3, uh, we see the amazing unity of Scripture from front to back, from Genesis to Revelation. What is promised way back in Genesis is fulfilled in the New Testament at the coming of Christ. We have one Bible, not two. We have one Bible comprised of both Old and New Testament. The message from start to finish is primarily about one thing. And that one thing, as we've been looking at in the men's breakfast on Saturday, first Saturdays of the, of the month, that per, it's about a person. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah who was to come. The, the passage that, that Rob read from Isaiah 53, it's amazing to think that that book was written 700 years before Christ. And you read that description of Christ. When you read that description of, of his atoning death for our sins and even the doctrine of imputation, by his, to use the King James, by his stripes or wounds, we are healed. He took our punishment that we might be saved. That's, that's the gospel, and it's all the way back in Isaiah chapter 53. That leads to the third question that that verse answers. What was the way of salvation in the Old Testament? Was it any different than that of what we find in the New Testament? Was the gospel different in the Old Testament? Many people wrongly think somehow that the Old Testament saints were saved by works in some way. Nothing could be further from the truth. What Paul is saying here in Galatians 3 verse 8 is that in Genesis 12 
verse 3, Genesis 15, 6. What we see there is nothing less than the gospel of justification by faith alone in Christ the Messiah. It is the gospel, no pun intended, in seed form. Because when, when, when God gave in the scripture that promise to Abraham, and you shall all the nations be blessed, he was promising him Christ. Abraham's not the savior, but his seed was. And that seed, which Paul says later in Galatians 3, is singular, not plural. And that singular, that one seed that was promised, is that of Christ himself. So he preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. And, and Jesus himself bears witness to this, doesn't he? Look at John chapter 5 sometime. John 5, verses 39 to 47. It's a paragraph long, but it's a good paragraph. John 5, 39 to 47. This is Jesus talking to the Pharisees and scribes. He says, you search the scriptures. What scriptures? The Old Testament. You search the scriptures. Why? Because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. No prophet ever would have said that, but Jesus can. They bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, uh, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before uh, to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. And here's what he says. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me, or he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Imagine the Pharisees hearing those words. They took their pride in following Moses. In fact, took their pride in following, I believe, only the first five books, the books of Moses. And Jesus says, guess what? You don't even believe Moses. You say you do. You think you do. You don't. He wrote about me, so if you reject me, you don't know anything about Moses or Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or any of those people. You, you, you don't know anything. You're the experts of nothing because you haven't come to Christ to have life. These Jews studied the scriptures very carefully, but they missed the entire point. They knew the Old Testament like the back of their hand, but didn't know anything because they rejected Christ. The Old Testament, and not just the New Testament, is first and foremost about the Lord Jesus Christ and the way of salvation by faith alone in him. No, every single per person that's ever lived and been saved by the grace of God is saved the same way that you and I are, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, period. If you're saved, you're saved the same way Abraham was. If you're saved, you're saved the same way Moses was. If you're saved, you're saved the same way Paul was, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ. So what about you this morning? Have you, have you searched the scriptures but missed the point? Do you claim to believe in the Bible but refuse to come to Jesus to have life? Have you come to Jesus by faith for salvation? In Romans chapter 4, verses 23 to 25, Paul says something that's really remarkable. He reminds us of why we have Genesis 15, 6 in the Bible in the first place. Why did God put that verse there? One, because it's true, and it's true history, right? It's what happened. 
But that's not the only reason. Uh, Romans 4, 23 to 25, Paul writes, but the words, it was counted to him, that is, remember it says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for what? Righteousness, Righteousness right. The words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Why? It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead our Lord Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What's he saying? He's saying the whole point was the gospel. When you and I read Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, the whole point is that we might go, I need that too. I don't have righteousness, and the only way I can get it is through Christ. So what do I do? It's, Abraham is our example of faith. We are to follow his example of faith by believing in Christ and having Christ's righteousness put to us by that faith. The great gospel truth of justification is written so that we too might not just know about what Abraham did, but we might follow his example of faith in Christ, that we might believe God at his word in the gospel of his son, that we might also have the righteousness of Christ himself counted to us for our salvation. To God be the glory. Amen.